Welcome to the New Books Network. Today I have the pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Michael Nichols, uh, who was recently on the podcast. Uh, I get to speak to him again uh, on a, another fascinating recent publication. Uh, he is Professor of Religious Studies at Martin University. And today we get to speak on uh, Malleable Mara, um, the transformations of a Buddhist symbol of evil. Um, Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back again. Honored to be here. Great. So maybe a quick word on Mara. That, for, that name will probably mean a lot to many people and not a lot to many people. So, so who is Mara? Yeah, yeah. Great question to start off with. And you're right. This is a figure known, known to some, but certainly not, not all. Um, within Buddhist traditions, uh, the figure of Mara represents the union of desire and, and death. Uh, this is a, a collapse of the categories of demon and God. And Mara is seen as overseeing the turning of the wheel of samsara. So life, death, and rebirth. He's a figure who works to keep beings trapped within that realm. And so as the goal of Buddhism is escape from that realm, Mara is the antagonist in a lot of Buddhist narratives, uh, Buddhist psychological theory, because he's seen as being an inner and outer force a deity who works externally on beings, and also he's an internalized force, sometimes spoken of metaphorically throughout Buddhist traditions as the um, the essence that keeps beings from wanting to turn towards uh, attempts at awakening. Quite possibly the most famous story that Buddhists tell and that people who study the Buddhist tradition or even don't study might have come across about Mara is his attempts right at the moment of Siddhartha Gautama's uh, right when he's on the precipice of achieving awakening at Bodh Gaya, uh, Mara intervenes and uses a number of different stratagems to try to stop Gautama from achieving Buddhahood, because um, this would constitute a challenge to Mara's authority. That's the Buddhist teaching is what subverts his ability to keep being trapped within the realm of samsara. So, uh, so a little word on Mara, and he, um, as the book describes, has had a presence throughout Buddhist traditions from ancient India, throughout the rest of Asia, and even up through uh, convert Buddhism, as you find it with in European and North American Buddhist traditions. So what is the object of study? Um, 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 whereby are you gleaning insights into this uh, mythological figure? So primarily, this is a textual analysis. So I look at uh, texts and stories and myths and traditions about Mara, Throughout Asian traditions, much of the book does focus on Indian Buddhism, uh, the early Pali texts up through Mahayana Buddhism, but uh, there's a chapter that goes through later Asian traditions in China and Japan, Southeast Asia, and also a chapter on the presence of Mara within the the convert Buddhists in, in Western traditions. And that one does get a little bit into some media studies. Uh, and there is a very limited amount of material culture and art that I look at. But primarily, this is a, a textual study, a comparison of these stories of Mara across these Buddhist traditions and also within those different cultural frameworks. Because the, uh, the thesis of the book is that Mara really serves as a barometer in all of those different appearances for the ways in which Buddhist communities are responding to the, the social and doctrinal concerns that they have and using Mara to express those things that are very particular to their brands of Buddhism and their cultural moment of Buddhism, and also to 
paint and demonize sectarian rivals, whoever those happen to be. And that changes, of course, depending on the context of the particular Buddhist tradition that you're looking at. So you've preempted one of my questions in 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 stating the the general thesis or gist of the book. Maybe this would be a good opportunity to talk about the layout of the book and maybe touch on the ways in which each chapter uh, um, contributes to the argument you're making. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the first chapter really lays out in the book, I should say, over, just as an overview, proceeds rather chronologically. So from earliest representations of Mara within early Indian Buddhism, all the way to the, the final chapter, which is about uh, Western Buddhist traditions. So really the first chapter lays out some of the theoretical concerns, sets some of the stage, introducing who and what Mara is. Uh, as we touched on briefly a few moments ago, that Mara is not terribly widely known outside of Buddhism, um, although there have been a couple of studies regarding Mara. Some of those go, go back a, a ways. Um, one of the earliest was in 1895 by a German scholar, uh, Ernst Windisch. And you don't find a whole lot of other works about Mara. And so this book was an attempt to do something that had not been done previously, which is to take a real longitudinal diachronic study of the figure and look at the ways it had developed and look at the different changes and emphases of Mount Mara. And so the first chapter really tries to lay out some of that framework about why the study was necessary the ways in which that kind of uh, point of view and analysis of the figure would be helpful to scholarship to look at how using the figure could be a, a lens into the concerns of different Buddhist groups across time. Then the next cluster of chapters, the second, third, and fourth, really uh, focus primarily on Indian Buddhism in polytexts and a few couple of, of Sanskrit texts, looking at the ways in which Mara was kind of created, the genesis of Mara was largely, at least I argue in those chapters, a way to differentiate Buddhism from Hindu competitors by drawing upon a number of Hindu stories and then subverting and redeploying the symbolism. To take one example, if you look at that famous Bodhgaya narrative in a text, for instance, like Buddhacharata by Gosha, he very deliberately labels Mara as Kamadeva which a scholar of Hinduism would recognize as the name of the, the god of desire, Kama. At the same time, there are elements of the representation, such as Mara's army, these beings that Mara calls upon to try to actually kill Gautama before he can achieve awakening, can be construed as having a great deal of similarities to the, 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 the Gunas of Shiva, uh, also to the figures that are associated with Yama. So in a lot of ways, Mara is a pastiche of different Hindu deities. Different aspects of Hindu deities come together in a way to form this figure. And there's a not-so-subtle kind of demonization of the cosmology of Hinduism at the same time. But God, in a sense, is a being which is trying to entrap humans and others within the realm of samsara. And the Buddha is the one who is going to overthrow that kind of tyranny. At the same time, you have demonic influences in there from the much smaller kinds of local deities like Yakas to Vritra and Nemuchi, uh, the names of which are explicitly used in other instances in Buddhist texts. So chapters, uh, chapter two kind of lays the foundation again for who and what Mara is within these Pali narratives. Chapter three focuses on the demonic attributes that are put upon Mara by these early Buddhist texts. And chapter four really levels the 
a charge about Mara being this pastiche of, of Hindu deities. Chapter five, we notice the, the flip that occurs with the rise of the Mahayana traditions, the tensions within Buddhism, uh, not that these didn't exist prior, but these really come to the fore, become more internal. And so Mahayana Buddhist texts deploy Mara as ways of differentiating themselves from other Buddhists. So at those points in those texts, you have rhetorics of Mara being um, able to take the form of other Buddhists, of Mara's rhetoric about the Mahayana being a form of attempts by other Buddhists to try to knock the Mahayana via off course. So that chapter really does look at the, the internal strife that's, that occurs, that when Mara uh, can become a way to talk about rival Buddhists, the sectarian differentiation is now, now internalized. Chapter 6 is kind of a, a tour of Asian traditions. I go through the Chinese, Tibetan, Japanese, and Southeast Asian deployments of the figure. And those, again, look at how local concerns then become the, the primary means of using the figure so that the, the concerns in those particular regions in those particular times come to the fore. And then finally, uh, to, to wrap up the book, uh, we look at how Mara is used within North American and, and British contexts to talk about concerns that are particular in those areas. So half of that chapter looks at how Mara really, in a way, becomes shorthand for a number of these writers uh, in a self-help sort of way. And that way, it somewhat mirrors the Western grappling with other terms like, I think, the analogy with, with the way yoga is used. Uh, he's taking uh, an, an Asian, ancient Asian tradition. And using it to, to talk about anti-consumerism, anti-capitalism, we find the same thing with, with Mara. Although most interesting to me in that chapter also is the how you find Mara in popular culture. Um, the chapter spends a lot of time talking about the way in which maybe one particular convert Buddhist, uh, Christopher Bailey, who was a writer for the Doctor Who television show, used Mara as a villain in several episodes of a run of a mid-1980s Doctor Who series, which show a, a conflation of a number of theological Western ideas uh, with Buddhist notions and what becomes an interesting kind of syncretism. Um, uh, the same with uh, another text called Letter from Mara, which also is covered in that chapter where a, a Canadian convert Buddhist wrote a short pamphlet where he, he cribbed C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters and instead wrote it as, as letters from Mara. And again, which syncretizes some Western theological notions with the ancient uh, Buddhist figure of Mara. So that's kind of a real quick sweep over the different chapters of the book and how it tries to, to do this kind of longitudinal study of the different concerns you find layered within Mara throughout the whole, the whole text and the whole sweep of Buddhist history. And, uh, the closing line that I used in the text is that one of the one of the things that has stayed the same about Mara throughout his history and throughout whatever Buddhist tradition you're talking about is his propensity to be a shapeshifter, which is something that can put you kind of ill at ease that Mara can be anything and anyone at any point in time. And the book kind of takes that to another level, saying if you look at the sweep of Buddhist history, that has definitely been true because Mara has taken so many different forms over all of this time. That's a great summation of the chapters of the book. Um, can you say a bit more about um, the methodology in terms of, you know, on this podcast, we've had a, um, 
other authors who have studied mythological characters over large spans of time, what come to mind are um, Adisate's um, um, work on Vishamitra. We have uh, the Parashurama work um, by Brian Collins. But tell us a bit about, you know, how do you study this character over time? Uh, are we focusing on the use of the character in a particular context? Are we focusing on continuities? Is it something other than this? Say a bit about that for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both where you, um, you look at the different contexts on their own terms and try to determine what is of primary importance to the particular community you're talking about at the moment and try to read each of those instances on its own to determine uh, on that basis and using outside sources as well when there are moments where you know what a particular historical concern of a community was. That can give you an in. That can give you another lens to look at what the deployment of Mar in that particular instance is. And then between the different time periods, right, uh, to see because that helps you to reveal exactly where some of those added layered elements happen to be. Um, Using an example from uh, the last chapter that I was just talking about, uh, within within the Doctor Who television series, Mara is represented continuously, his primary form is as a giant snake. Now, when we look back at other examples of uses of Mara within the Indian, Tibetan, Southeast Asian, Chinese, Japanese traditions, we don't find a number of great examples of Mara as a snake. Uh, there is one particular instance of Mara taking the form of a giant snake, uh, very isolated, very brief within some of the polytechs, uh, the Mara Sunyuta of the Sunyuta Nikaya. This is an element that was added by, by Christopher Bailey. And some of the extra element, the interviews with Christopher Bailey that you read, he talks very explicitly about how his own background within Christian traditions led him to interpret uh, his different writings. And so it's not too far of a stretch to say in that particular context, you have something of a Christian element being added to this Buddhist mythological figure. Although at the time within that particular Doctor Who episode, he's making a number of comments about consumption and commodification. So he's both responding to um, his particular moment within history through this text, and uh, he's also drawing upon elements to syncretize at the same time, kind of even subconsciously in some ways. In terms of different theoreticians that I've used to try to make those combinations, those uh, those interpretations come alive, uh, ones that were particularly helpful to me were Mikhail Bakhtin, this notion of the dialogic imagination, about the, the embedding of the dialogic that all comments uh, are in some ways responses to others. That was very helpful for thinking about how Mara from the beginning was not a, a, a character that just emerges out of whole cloth, out of nothing, that this is a figure that was used from his very earliest inception to respond to other cultural figures. He was drawing upon the Indian imagination. And that's something that you find throughout the, the figure of Mara. Uh, James Liska, a semiotician of mythology, was also very helpful. His concept of transvaluation, where when you compare different texts and sometimes different versions of the same story, quote unquote, and you look at the elements that have been altered and changed, uh, his you know, very, very simple theory, which I found to be a very, very helpful theory. So when you look at those elements that have been shifted and changed, those are the places 
where you can find the different values of the particular community to author that text coming to the fore. So when you look at the different versions, the different imaginations of the story, say, of Bodhgaya, the way that it's portrayed within art, the way that it's portrayed uh, within text, then those small differences come to the fore. And you can use those as ways of understanding what the particular concerns of that community would be, why they changed what they did. Um, and also other comparative mythologists like uh, Wendy Doniger and Bruce Lincoln, who have looked at the reimagination of mythology over time, the way that symbols change and the way that you can look at those changes as being not just accidental, but as being, as being deliberate. Um, so that kind of as a summation is the, some of the, the theoretical, theoretical and methodological background. Yeah, perhaps unsurprising, I find it an intriguing prospect of looking at a mythological character over a large span of time. I had in the back of my brain to do a book called Mapping Markandeya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it became a chapter of, of book two, so I, I think I'm sated with that for now, but uh, perhaps at some point, uh, and look at, you know, uh, you know, a, a great uh, Hindu sage over, over, over the various textual cultural iterations and there's this really rich tension of well you know um are we looking at for example markandeya uh, in a particular context are we looking at a markandeya that sort of transcends those and continues beyond them it reminds me of this um this teaching tale someone shared with me once you know I think this might be from, from ancient Greek philosophy, actually. You know, I had a jackknife for 40 years, same jackknife. Uh, sometimes I changed the handle, and then sometimes I changed the blade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's the same knife I've had for 40 years. I digress, clearly. Um, what? Uh, why is this character so um, implicated in um, psychology, the study of psychology? Mm. That's a good question. That's a good question. And so that is one of the themes in, in the book is how the internalization of Mara kind of comes to the fore. And it's particularly one that gets latched upon by uh, Western Buddhists, by convert Buddhists. Um, and there's a particular reason, I think, for that. But first, I think within the, the Buddhist tradition, it really speaks to the, the macrocosmic, but also the microscopic level of Mara's control. Um, I think Buddhism from its beginning and Dharma uh, in, as a term can be read and, and interpreted and translated a number of different ways as religion, as philosophy, as psychology. So Buddhists have always been very interested in the inner workings of the mind because so much about grasping and desire has to do with mental processes. So it makes a lot of sense that the obstacles to one having correct understanding, correct knowledge, and ultimately achieving awakening would be seen as also internalized as part of human psychology. So it makes a lot of sense for Mara to also have a foothold and to live to a great extent within human psychology. And so there is, in the later traditions, a development uh, called the Four Maras, which one of the four happens to be the, the deva, the god, the large macrocosmic Mara, shown as holding the wheel of death and rebirth. And the others have to do with mental processes as a way, a commentarial way of trying to break down this huge expansive figure into subcategories. Uh, I think you know, largely as a, as a pedagogical way of understanding Mara, as a way of teaching about the different practices that Buddhists have to do in order to overcome uh, the obstacles of Mara. So Buddhism has always been interested in psychology. So this makes all kinds of sense 
that Mara would figure in that and be a part of that teaching. But you know, as the book shows, Mara's also been understood, you know, not just as a psychological figure, but also as this narrative figure, as this as this deity that kind of bestrides the world. That part becomes lesser emphasized within Western Buddhism and what has been termed by some other scholars the sort of Protestant Buddhism, because I think of that turn towards the seeing Buddhism. Uh, those who have been drawn to Buddhism in the West oftentimes do so as a way to work against the what they see as the organized religion, try to drain it of its mythological components. A great example of this is a figure like Stephen Batchelor, who has written quite a bit on his own interpretation of Mara. And Stephen Batchelor, for those who are not familiar, is a, a British convert uh, Buddhist who has written um, books like... Um, Buddhism without beliefs, where he believes that a a totally, from his point of view, rationalized uh, Buddhism, scientific Buddhism, is the most appropriate sort of tradition and sort of practice. And he has wrote wrote a second book called Living with the Devil, where his interpretation of Mara is entirely metaphorical, entirely psychological, just as the inner workings of the mind that a person needs to overcome. And that valence is certainly within ancient Buddhist texts. It's not the primary one that you find, uh, even within modern Buddhist traditions, but it's one that gets emphasized by those Western convert Buddhists who want to interpret Buddhism as primarily a philosophy and, and a psychology. And so that was an interesting dynamic to look at in that last chapter, how a figure which had had such rich traditions as a, a mythic entity then is seen as a figure without mythology. What do you do when you take away that mythic element? When you when you deduct that from the equation, what's left and the sorts of stories you get left are the things like Stephen Batchelor creates or the, the metaphor for the psychology that you get within a story like the, the Doctor Who episodes that I look at. Would you share your thoughts um, on such movements uh, in terms of, for example, looking uh, to Buddhist teachings or practices, but sort of... Um, 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 uh, plucked from a specific religious context, um, used more for psychology. Could you could you give us a sense of of what you think of that? Well, I, I approach it primarily as you know another example, another example of data of, of, of other materials to look at. Um, one hallmark of Buddhism throughout its history has been change, as it's moved through different cultures. Those different cultures have interpreted and reinterpreted uh, from their own points of view. Mara is a fantastic example of that process and how it occurs. And so what has sometimes been called uh, from practitioners within the West, the new Buddhism uh, is just another artifact of that. And so I find it a really interesting way to compare how these traditions have changed over time uh, to put the one against the other. Um, for it has been a fascinating scholarly enterprise. Um, from my own point of view, as someone who got into the study of religion because of the richness of narratives and the way that they can spark imagination, the way that they can um, really enliven one's own personal beliefs, um, I guess I do have a sense that I, I like to keep the magic within the, the mythology. I like to see those things as being uh, worthy of meaning and not uh, 
as sometimes you see phrased in some of these texts, just mythology. Um, but that's a very personal interpretation. Uh, as, as a scholar, I find the comparison and the change over time the thing that I focus on primarily. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your personal stance and 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 your 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 connection to this. Um, likewise, I feel that enchantment's important, <laughs> one way or another, um, particularly in perhaps our very disenchanted times. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, all movements, whether they're iterations, whether they're adaptations, whether they're new religious movements, they make for fascinating objects of of inquiry without question. Um, but so what would you say is the key takeaway of your book? Like what's the key argument you're making? Mm-hmm. I know you touched on it, but in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. It's that uh, uh, when, when you look at Mara over time, you find that Mara is used uh, a close connection to whatever the social and doctrinal concerns are of the particular Buddhist community that you're looking at. So Mara has been used to, reinforce what were considered the essential teachings of a particular group and to literally demonize whoever that particular group considered at that time to be a sectarian uh, rival. So uh, Mara has been a vessel into which any Buddhist group could pour their particular concerns. Uh, and He, in a very protean way, would take whatever form they needed him to take. In terms of your chapters, uh, I guess case studies, um, examples of this uh, demonization, um, is there one in particular that uh, that's most remarkable to you or surprising in some way or gripping or, you know, is there a particular instance that stands out to you? One of the ones that has always uh, stuck out to me from my very earliest uh, studies of Mara, and I should say that you know, my study of Mara goes back a, a long ways. Uh, that's I first became interested in the figure as an undergraduate. And then my master's thesis, I took a small sliver of this to work on and then a little bit bigger for my doctoral dissertation heavily revised both added lots of layers and other you know kind of accordioned out the whole thing into a book so this is from about 2002 onward uh, up to 2019 was the whole journey of putting the the book together and so i compiled a lot of those instances of demonization throughout there one that has stuck out to me that goes back to one of the very early estrada research is a moment from the early Mahayana text, the uh, perfection of wisdom literature, um, where the Buddha is said to instruct those who are first going out onto the Bodhisattva path that you may have members of other Buddhist vehicles come to you and tell you that this teaching, the perfection of wisdom, is a work of Mara. Now, bear in mind that those who tell you this is a work of Mara themselves are denizens of Mara and have been enslaved by Mara and goes on and on. And so what I found so fascinating about that was, you know, the, the anticipation, the, the way that Mara is in a, in a way being batted back and forth like a tennis ball. As you can see, I think, enshrined in there, the fact that Mara was very heavily used in this rhetoric between the two sects and that they uh, either had received that charge, that the perfection of wisdom was a work of Mara, or they were anticipating it. And so they, the, the most logical thing for them to do was to redirect it back. That's you know, the most heinous thing that they could do is say, no, no, you are a work of Mara. And so the finger pointing, uh, I found just fascinating in that one little piece of the perfection of wisdom. That, that told me a lot about the way that Mara was being deployed in, in that context there. 
A couple of thoughts come to mind um, randomly, of course. For <laughs> the first is uh, Madhvacharya's uh, literal demonization of Shankara, <laughs> mm-hmm. as uh, you know, having come to destroy the world essentially. Um, also, this principle—it's uh, Maya, right? It's a hall of mirrors. Like, which one is the Maya? Like, it's it's it's. Uh, it, it, um, let's put it this way. Um, I imagine that if you pay attention to um, certain places in the globe as it is, you'll see two different factions, each demonizing the other. Mm-hmm. Wherein lies the truth, right? So I, I, I can relate to why that's compelling. It's it's so human, isn't it? And then yeah. how, how do you know? How do you know which one's a doppelganger, right? How do you know which one's real? Yeah. Um, and you, you, thank you for sharing a bit of the the story of how you got interested in this. Had I had more coffee this morning, I would have asked that at the outset of this interview. But no, the truth is, I was uh, <laughs> doing a bit of research up to like the minute before the interview. I'm like, oh, I gotta go. Um, so I'm glad we got a bit of that backstory, dis- despite my haze at the moment. Um, is this a is this a, a myth cycle, a, a figure that you will continue to work on? I think so. I think so. Definitely. They're, they're in uh, smaller bites and smaller chunks, uh, because there are things that, uh, I think keep, keep arising that get me interested in the figure. And one of the, one of the things that I left undone in the book, uh, is there implicit and maybe in little bits and chunks, it was a, a little bit more of the comparative element, uh, looking at Marin, the, the wider constellation of other figures of, of evil and also of uh, more of what what is considered in categories and defined as evil culturally, and also in this larger category that I've become interested in of the the quote unquote monstrous, what is defined as being monstrous, and one of the things that I might like to do with the figures to look at the ways we can use some of those categories to carry out comparison between Mara and other figures. One of the I think infelicitous ways that Mara has been compared in the past has been a, a very uh, quick and dirty connection to the, the Christian figure of Satan. And there are definitely some connections there, but you did in some of the older scholarship, especially find quick uh, offhand references to Mara as the quote unquote Buddhist Satan, which I think elides a lot of the differences. And of course, you know, casts Mara in some ways that are, uh, square peg and round hole. Um, but I think a really good comparison, not just to figures within the Christian context, but to other figures around the world might be interesting to carry out uh, using some, some of the theoretical tools like, like uh, the monstrous, like that term, or the ways in which that helps us to look at Mara in a wider lens uh, beyond just figures that seem like the, the immediate comparison. Who might be interested most in reading this book or uh, uh, otherwise put sort of what interests and or subfields does it, does it contribute to? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that's, you know, Buddhist studies certainly uh, is a field that would be interested in this because of the, the wide swath. And I think uh, scholars in Buddhist studies across different traditions, scholars of, of South Asia in general, since so much of the book is about Indian Buddhism and the connection between Indian Buddhism and Hindu traditions, I think, would find the connections interesting. Those in broader religious studies who like to look at longitudinal studies, development of narratives over time about rhetorics of demonization, I think, would find this to be an an interesting study. Um, I do draw upon monster theory, the theory of the monstrous, in a number of occasions throughout the book. And so I think that 
scholars who have an interest in, in those sorts of figures would find this to be a worthwhile book to take a look at. Uh, speaking of monsters, there was a really great, um, it's actually a master's thesis on behalf of a student of my my doctoral advisor on uh, looking at um, uh, monstrous themes to understand Kali, the goddess Kali and the Devi Mahatmya. Mm. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, yet again, I digress. Is there anything else about the book that you wish to touch upon before we close today? I think that, you know, primarily this was a, this was a book that was a, a labor of love uh, and because it, it took a long while to, to put together and saw many different iterations. And so uh, as, as my first book, it was um, an extraordinarily gratifying experience to see something that I had first dreamed of when I was a very, very early graduate student you know, take physical form to be able to hold it in my, in my hands at the end. That was a, a great moment. And so um, having its genesis you know, very early on in this uh, moment where I looked at a polytext and a few days later quite accidentally looked at a Mahayana text and saw two very different visions of Mara and kind of thought, well, what happened in between the two? And, you know, the book emerged from that, just that very, very simple observation. Um, it's just been a great journey along the way of many years. And so I hope that there are people out there who enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it and, and, and putting it together and then find it, it helpful. I hope you're listening out there, all you grad students, you know, hold on to those ideas and germinate them <laughs> because, you know, uh, you may end up publishing a fantastic book one day and you never know, maybe being on this podcast or another such podcast. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. As did I. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Michael Nichols on a 2019 Sunni publication entitled Malleable Mara, the Transformations of a Buddhist Symbol of Evil. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating how mythic motifs change over time. Take care.